Thank you for joining us today at Conversations to Inspire. Our guests today, Rick and Beth Olson, are the authors of the book, We Never Left You. And they are both shamans working together in their shamanic healing practice. The recording that we did was beyond words, beyond incredible. And it is divided into two parts. This is part one of two. I know you will be encouraged by their story. And I know you will listen to both parts. Here to share their story with you are Rick and Beth Olson. Thank you for joining us today at Conversations to Inspire. I am sitting with Rick and Beth Olson, authors of We Never Left You. And Rick and Beth are both shamans. So Rick and Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your story? Most definitely. Sure. Um, well, thank you for allowing us to do this, too. We always are um, happy to present our story because we know it provides uh, hope and enlightenment for people. And that's one of the reasons that we're here. We've figured out as we'll get into as we go through this. Um, in 1999, uh, we were we had just moved from the West Bend area over to a place, uh, a suburb of Madison, which is, is Wanakee. And we had only been there about a month. Uh, I was taking over an insurance agency and I had been doing a lot of traveling. And we, I had come back on Friday and Beth ended up leaving for most of that weekend uh, with uh, uh, a trip with some friends, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And so she came back on Sunday afternoon, and we I was going to be traveling again. So we decided we were going to go and get um, some uh, materials from the mall to build a fence for some a puppy that we had gotten for the kids. Since they were uh, new to the area, we thought that would help them to make friends. <clears throat> so we left, and we pulled up to a stoplight. And as we were sitting, it was the second or third car back, and we're sitting there, we heard um, some sirens coming. And there was a police car coming at us from the opposite direction. And it turned uh, to our left and headed away, and then the light turned green. And um, the cars in front of us went. I paused for just a moment to look, make sure there wasn't anything else around, and I pulled out. And the next thing I remember is that... Um, uh, waking up and a gentleman telling me, you know, don't move. You've been hurt. You're in an accident. We don't know how bad you are yet. So as we pulled through the intersection, I mean, I'm watching as well to make sure that nothing is coming. So we're halfway through the intersection and I hear this loud, loud noise. And I turn around to ask the children, what was that noise? And that's when I saw that Joshua was dead. Um, his neck broke. Um, his eyes were still open. Um, and my daughter, Jessica, was half outside the window. She, um, yeah, her half of her body was still in, but partway out the window. So I looked down at myself to see, like, oh, my God, what, what the heck just happened? And I was perfectly fine. There was, I didn't have anything wrong with me. So, and I could hear Rick moaning to my left. So I knew he was alive. But then I was like, right away, oh my God, I have to help my, help my children. And so I jump out of the car and I think about it and I'm like, oh my God, I need a doctor. I need somebody to help me. I need a doctor. And this man came up to me. Um, he was on my left side. He put his hand on my left shoulder and he said, I'm a doctor. And so is my wife. And we were in the intersection and we saw what happened. What can I do to help? And I said, 
can you help me get my daughter out so we can save her? And, um, and so he was, he, he and his wife got on top of that right away. And I just start, you know, being numb and like, what the hell just happened? Um, it was, it was so like your worst nightmare happening right in front of your eyes. Um, I, I just started walking around the car trying to see if, to make sure Wick is alive. I went by Joshua to see if I could do anything for my poor son and, um, just kept apologizing to him. Um, then I just kept asking for more things. I was like, Oh my God, we need a helicopter. I need to get my baby to the hospital. We just need help. So, um, slowly, I mean, I heard a helicopter. I also saw people taking pictures, um, really upset me. You know, I was like, what the fuck? Excuse me. I don't know if you could say that. <laughs> You're good. You're good. And, um, so it just really was my worst nightmare coming true. And I kept thinking I need to wake up. This has got to be a dream because it's so unreal. Um, kept going by Jessica, just checking on her, just, you know, just loving my Josh as much as I could and watching Rick. So eventually an ambulance, ambulance took Jessica and I to the hospital and I proceeded or started calling people, calling my dad, calling my family to tell them what happened. Um, we got into the hospital and the doctors were trying to do their best with Jessica. Um, and then you came in. Yep. So, um, they got, uh, I, I was basically stuck in there. They weren't. They weren't letting me move. They were taking inside the car. Inside the car, so he uh, wasn't like you're not. The car did not was not on top of you or right. anything. Or you weren't. They just weren't letting okay. me move until they took care of um, Jessica. And once they got that taken care of, then they worked on me. They got me out of the car. They were trying not to move me much because they didn't know if I had any type of injuries at all. Um, what had happened was a drunk driver had run through a red light at 80 miles an hour and became airborne and broadsided her minivan. He hit right behind uh, the driver's seat, and which was right where the kids were sitting because we had a minivan. So he they, actually even went airborne. Yeah, he did. Because there airborne. was a divot in the in the road, and so he actually went airborne and came down. And you're in town. I mean, this is in, like you're out in the country. So it's Sunday afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, mm -hmm. and we're in town. So um, they got me out, and you know they're in the ambulance, and they're like, "Where do you want to go?" I'm like, "What do you mean, where do I want to go?" <laughs> I said, "I want to go wherever you took my wife and daughter." So they took me to the hospital, and they were able to figure out I wasn't, you know, that severely injured. So. They put me in one of the curtained areas for the emergency room. And while I was in there, you know, waiting, uh, all of a sudden in the, in the curtain room next to me, I hear somebody yelling, you know, let me go. Why am I here? You know, I didn't do anything. Why am I here? Let me go. Unbeknownst to everybody, they put the person that the drunk driver that just uh, had killed their son into the room next to me. And so I'm in there for a little bit while longer and, um, a doctor comes in and said, uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. And I said, I know. I said, Josh didn't make it. And the doctor said, son of a bitch. And he walked out. And then Beth came back in. Um, yeah, I came back in to tell Rick that Jessica was not going to make it and that we had to let her go. 
So he needed to come up and go to the room with me and say goodbye to Jessica. So we figured that doctor was the doctor that was working on Jessica. And he was apologizing for you losing her. Jessica. Not knowing that you already had lost Josh. That we had to leave Josh at the accident scene. They didn't couldn't bring him with us just right. quite yet. So Rick and I, we had to go into the room, another room, where Jessica was laying with the sheets over her and say goodbye and just let her go. Yeah. And then a little while later, they told us, you know, that Josh was brought in. And we said, well, we need to go say goodbye to him. And they said, well, you can't. He's evidence. You can't yeah. see him or touch him. Evidence. And at the time, we were still in, in so much in shock that we didn't argue with it at all. But, you know, we think about it later and like, that's just bullshit. <laughs> Absolutely callous bullshit. It was horrible. And to this day, I'm still angry that we never said a thing or like was like, OK, I won't touch him. But bye bye. I'm going in there and just love him. Yeah, some but more. that's not where your thought process is oh, at that right. moment. You're so wounded. You're, right. You can't even comprehend. You can't comprehend not following the rules. You know, everything just went wrong in your life and you're just trying to hang on to any sense of dignity or anything. Anything. And yet somebody's telling you, no, this is the rules. You can't touch them. And we're like, okay. Yeah. And so um, I was able to be released that night. We went home. Um, We, you know, somehow went to bed and fell asleep. And when we woke up the next morning, uh, Beth says, I, I can't go on. I can't do this. I can't live my rest of my life without my children. Right. So I said, well, can you make it through the day? And she said, no. I said, well, can you make it through the next hour? And she said, no. I said, how about the next five minutes? And she said, no. So I said, well, let's just focus on the next breath then. So let's just say breathe. So we laid there for a little bit and just breathed. And all of a sudden, Beth says, I got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And so life has a way of making you move on. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't even begin to comprehend just the horror. And how do you even begin to come to grips with it? How do you process it? How do you even navigate, like you said, the next minute, right? the next moment? You don't even want to survive yourself because you lost your, your loved ones. And so tragedy. Yeah, that was all our kids. We were, you know, a, a, the quintessential American family, you know, boy and a girl, and uh, you know, us, a new job, new house, and in a matter of moments, we lost it. How yeah. old were Josh and Jesse? Jessica was nine, and Joshua was seven. Jessica really wanted to be 10, mm-hmm. she wanted to be double digits. So. That would have been in September. So. Yeah, this was in July that this happened. July eighteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. Okay. So we began to try and move forward. You know, at first, you know, we're in shock. In those first few days, it was you know just numb, and there's family and everybody there and friends, and people are trying to help. And unfortunately, the media media began to get involved because it was you know it's a large town and it was. Um, you know, a drunk driver, and it was two kids that were killed. And um, so there was this tremendous media attention that started both, you know, radio and television. And we're more or less private people, and especially at that point. And this aspect of this uh, attention from the media continues on. And we'll talk more about it as we go. But this was just the beginning. And so 
we're trying to figure out how to do all this and, and we're not really you know functioning that well at that point no and it's so raw right. and it's just it has ripped your life yep. apart yep. and right. now you have to deal with the media of mm-hmm. all things well and you also have to get a car because we don't have a car now because our right. car was destroyed um we have to like people want you to eat and you're like i don't even know if i like food anymore if i can right. eat so yeah. there's all of these basic you know fundamental things that you have to even like figure out again yeah. right. because your mind is not even working properly yeah yeah and so we had made the decision that we were going to have the funeral back in West Bend because that's where the kids, you know, had had been born and had grown up. And, and yeah, all their friends were there. All their friends were there. And so we got a hold of um, a funeral director that my mom knew, that, he, that she had worked with. My mom was a nurse at the hospital, and she had uh, formed a relationship with this guy because of him coming in with, and he was also part of an ambulance crew, so... Um, his name is Jim Phillips. He becomes pretty important, and we'll talk about why. But um, we made the journey back to West Bend on Thursday, and the accident happened on Sunday. We go back, and um, we go to to the funeral home because we're supposed to, you know, make arrangements and all that. And, and we bring walk, their clothing and, and yeah. things we want in the coffin. Yes, right. And so we walk in there, and the mood of the funeral home kind of matched us. It was dark. It was dreary. There's nobody there. We're walking, hello, hello, hello. And finally somebody comes up and says, well, can I help you? And I says, well, we're the Olsons, and, you know, Jim is working on our our kids. And she's like, okay, let me go get him." So we're just standing there waiting, and we're just kind of both still just numb and don't know what to do. And Jim comes walking towards us with this big smile on his on his face. And I'm looking at him going, you're an idiot. <laughs> and he comes up to us and says, that Josh, he keeps turning on the lights and changing the radio station. Can you tell him to knock it off? And we're looking at each other going, what? And he says, yeah, I'm down there trying to work on, on your kids. And Josh keeps turning the lights on and off and changing the radio station. Tell him to knock it off. You're giving me goosebumps. And so this was our introduction to the concept that our kids are not gone. They're just in a different place. And so we started talking to him about it, obviously, because he has some interesting viewpoints on life and death, being a funeral director and, and, and being involved in an ambulance crew. And it started to, started the process of us thinking about there's possibly something more after, you know, after people die. And so... That gave us that small spark of hope. And then the next day, it was the day of the funeral, And but in the morning. Well, also, I always say, like, when our kids died, I think our faith, and I'm just talking, I'm not talking your Catholic or your religious faith. I always said your faith is the size of a library card or a credit card, and you pull it out when something bad happens like this. You right. pull that out, and you're like, right. you're reading the fine print on this itty-bitty little card for something that would help. You turn it over and there's never enough, you know? And then all of a sudden it's like, seriously, we had no idea if our kids were alive. You know, everybody was like thinking they're in the dead on the ground. Um, And then to be introduced to our children from Jim that they were still alive, that was huge. That was life-changing. He introduced us to our children as spirit. And before that, that hadn't been any part of your belief system? No. We had never even thought about it. I suppose, and even in that crisis mode, your body and your mind hadn't been able to even recognize that that was a possibility. They're not there anymore. That's all we know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Taken from you. Exactly. So can I ask you a question? How did he know it was Josh? I don't know. We don't know. But that would be Joshua. That would be Josh because he was our tinkerer. He would always say, Mom, are you done with the toaster? Because I need to tear it apart. I mean, he's seven (laughs) years old. I'm like, no, I need my toaster. He once asked me for the lawnmower. He's like, I want to see how it works. And I'm like, honey, we need the lawnmower. So he was our little guy who we always, I always said to Rick that he is our old soul. And he is not on this, well, I knew in my heart we were going to lose him early, but that's a whole other part of the story. And um, Rick always thought I was just a nervous mother. But I said, he's an old soul. He's not on this earth for long. Um, so, okay, so on Thursday morning, um, I have a friend who is a medium, and so I had called her, and I said, can you see us? And she most definitely squeezed us in and got us in right before the funeral. So we talked with her for a, at least an hour, and she was amazing. She's almost like a therapist, too. Um, and as we were about, we were all done, about ready to leave, and she says, um, wait, the kids are here. And so we were so excited. Um, And so we sat down and we started listening to her. And as she was telling her story, she just kept kind of looking up to the... um, to the left upper room and just kept listening to something. I mean, we couldn't hear it. And then she says, uh, well, Jessica's here, but Josh is not here. He is at Six Flags Great America. (laughs) (laughs) In Illinois. Well, he didn't say Illinois, but she said it is Six Flags Great America because there is no lions in the spirit world. Oh my gosh, this also gives insight into his amazing personality. Yes. Yep. I'm like, that's exactly uh, where the, our little guy would be, you know? Uh, so she but, says, um, she said, but Jessica is here. So we're like just sitting down, like so excited. And then she says, Did Jessica like fried chicken? And this is just not something I ever made. I've never made, we're not from the South. I've never made fried chicken. <laughs> I'm telling her that. And she goes, and she again, she's looking up to the lower, or excuse me, the upper left side of the room, and she's like, she's saying she, yes, she's saying she wants the chicken in the basket. And she's like, did she like chicken biscuits or those crackers? And I'm like, no, no, I, I just couldn't put my finger on it. But now we have to go back to the weekend. Um, when Rick had ki- came home that weekend, I left with some girlfriends. We went to Madison. It was the American Girl sale. And those American Girls dolls are loved by so many people. And Jessica was in love with her Josefina. She had Christine. And so every summer they have this huge sale that are on returns or um, damaged items. And so you could go to Madison and items were like $5, you know, in the catalog, they're 75. So of course my girlfriends and I were certainly were there and we were shopping and we were buying tons of things. Well, on that Sunday, as I got home from the sale with my girlfriends, Jessica was kind of hiding because she knew a lot of these presents, these items were for her, for her Christmas and her birthday presents. As we brought him in, Joshua was helping and he was just such a sweet pea. He just would carry everything that I asked him to. And then I was in the bedroom and I was making piles on my bed. And I would be like, okay, this is for my niece, Amanda, or this is for my other niece. Uh, This is for Jessica. And then I got to this one little chicken in the basket. It it truly was a chicken in the basket. And I said to Josh, I'm like, 
Do you think Jessica would like this little chicken in the basket? Because it's for her favorite doll, Josefina. But I bought it for Amanda. And I said, but I think Jessica would like it. And he said, yeah, Mom, I think she would like the chicken in the basket. So it went in her pile. We left probably a half hour later to go to the mall. And that's when the accident happened. So Josh wouldn't have had time to tell Jessica. Plus, he was so um, really trying not to let her know what the gifts were. Mm-hmm. So here we are, back now, Thursday, um, and, and Kathy's talking about, well, did she like chicken in the biscuit crackers? You know, we're thinking all of these things that can be chicken in the basket, because again, a lot had happened from Sunday now to Thursday, and finally it dawned on me what the chicken in the basket was, and I was like, oh. just overwhelmed, just with joy. And I had to tell Kathy, and I had to tell Rick, and we're bawling, and we're like, oh, my God, they're alive. They truly are alive. Because it just was so, um, I mean, it's not a doll or a ball. It was so specific. It was mm-hmm. chicken. And and something a, completely random. Very random. Right. And that she would not have known about. No. It, right? no, she didn't. Uh, right. And the fact that she actually said she wanted it. Yes. I love that. I know. So this is completely had to like spark your your joy. Oh my God! It was everything. It was like they were alive. Yes. You know. Yes. You know. Jim was introducing us to our kids as spirit, but this was ultimate proof, and it's ultimate proof. There's life after death because yes, chicken in the basket. Come on, that's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we were, you know, we were done with Kathy and we were leaving, and she says, oh. The kids have one more surprise for you in the car. <laughs> and so we, you know, we were all excited. We ran out to the car and we got in the car and we're sitting there and we're looking around and there's nothing happening, nothing going on. And we're like, well, okay. So I start up the car and this song comes on the radio. And at that time, the kids' favorite movie was um, Tarzan, the animated movie from Disney. Okay. And the song that came on the radio was one of the songs from the movie. And the song was titled Two Worlds, One Family. Mm, linking yep. the spirit world yep. with yeah. the tangible world. Yeah. And so yeah. that was the song that was on the radio. So we finally figured out that at that point we, you know, really understood that our kids were someplace else. Yeah. You know, but and they, they were, were still, alive. They were alive. Yeah. They were someplace Just else. Just not in a physical body. Yeah. And so we finally went and ate. We went to Hardee's and and we cried and we just, we were so overjoyed. We were like, but this is so special. This is going to be just for us. We really felt it was just a sweet truth between the four of us. Right. We went to the, um, then we went to the funeral home because the service was going to be that afternoon and we walk in and our families are there. So I have to back you up. So you just had this spark of brightness of realization that oh my gosh they are still with us and then you have to transition and go to the the funeral funeral. and see them yeah and we had um we put both kids in one coffin we did that because they were always together so and jim was like he found an oversized oversized adult (laughs) casket yeah. Yeah. And he told us he kept trying to get them in there and they just wouldn't quite fit, wouldn't quite fit. And finally he said, come on, kids, you got to help me. This has got to work. And all of a sudden they just whoop, whoop, slid right into place is what he said. So we showed up and our families are there and obviously they're just, you know, stricken, awful. Uh, awful. And so we decided to just tell him the story about the chicken in the basket. 
that the kids were alive, you right. know, to share. Yeah. And so there's, you know, those little smiles and the, just a little bit of brightness. And, um, and so then the, you know, the funeral starts and the line comes through and it, there was literally hundreds and hundreds of people that came through and there was, um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Beth looks at me and she hits me and she says, they're telling her story. I could see my dad telling everybody about it. And I was kind of upset because it was oh, the odd. chicken in the basket, the chicken story. In the basket story. Because dad was always kind of the town crier, you know. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're telling our story, you know, that we were going to keep this so small. And it was already growing. Right. You know why, though? Because people needed to hear it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And people also needed to tell it. Mm-hmm. There's something to have that special story and to hear it and repeat it and repeat it. It is, it kind of even reaffirms it for yourself. Yes. Right. So. That's when we realized that this story wasn't for us. It was going to be for everybody. And so we figured at that point that we're going to have to write a book about this, about the story. Yeah. To share. Know, to right. share. To help others. We had no clue when, but yeah. we just figured we would. So, and that was probably inspired by your kids. It was, yeah. yeah. That was. thought that from spirit, yes. Right. And so um, after the funeral, we began to, you know, whatever way we could, start to put our life back together. We were dealing with the district attorney uh, because of the potential charges that were coming up with this. Um, we were dealing with the media. We were trying to um, go down the path of... of counseling or therapy and that didn't work very well um we tried probably a half a dozen different therapists and the problem was every time our counselor and we would every time we tried a new one we would have to tell our story we'd have to tell what happened and we would get one one lady said well i can relate to your loss because i've had a divorce and then another person said Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. you know i can help you uh to get rid of the memory so you don't have the pain and another Mm -hmm. one said i can help you to by screaming into a pillow and that helps to get rid of the rage and and we're just like none of these worked and we we would visit just one time with them and that was it and see, the, the issue was, well, one of the issues was we didn't have any anger. We weren't mad at him. We, that's not how we were. Being angry at him did nothing to help our kids or to help us. So we really had no anger at him. I mean, obviously we weren't happy with what happened, but it's not like we had this rage that we had to deal with. And there was... um a person that suggested that we try um, some energy work, you know, maybe that would make a difference. And cause she had just started taking some classes for uh, shamanic healing. And so we thought, well, we might as well try that because you know, nothing else seems to work. So we went out to Utah for a weekend uh, seminar on shamanism. And during the course of that weekend, you were supposed to work with a partner or somebody else and do some of these um, healing techniques to as part of the process. And so when we first got there, during one of the breaks, I went up and talked to the instructor, and the instructor's name was Alberto Violdo. And I explained to him what had happened to us, and he's like, well, how long ago did that happen? And, well, the accident was in July, and this was in November. So I said it was, you know, five, six months ago, whatever it was. And he's like, okay. He said, you're not working with each other. He said, I will work with Beth and um, my assistant will work with you. 
And so he asked if Beth would be willing to be uh, uh, a person that he could demonstrate to the rest of the class this, this one healing technique. And Beth said, sure. And so uh, he went through that process. And after that, he mentioned to us, he said, I'd like to talk to the two of you when class is done, um, uh, when the weekend's done. And we said, sure. So we sat down with him afterwards. And he said, I want you to know that um, during the course of the healing, your kids came and your kids came and talked to me. He said, but they're not little kids. They presented themselves to me as these large eight foot spirits. He said, they're very powerful. He said, and they're very old. Um, and he said, uh, he, they came up to us and, and they came to me and started to talk to me about what happened. And he looked at me and he said, you were knocked out at the accident scene, right? And I said, yes. And we had not told him this. And he said, well, the kids told me the reason why you were unconscious is because you had to help them cross over. He said, you've been a shaman in many lifetimes before and you knew that path and you knew that journey. So you helped them to make that to cross over. Uh, to the other side and in fact they said you need to become a shaman again you need to learn how to be a shaman this lifetime again and to help people and so he invited us to uh, down to Peru with him because this was the turn of the century okay this was 1999 when the accident happened so it would have been the turn of the century he said I'm taking a small group down to Peru to over the turn of the century to visit a number of ancient sites and to do ceremonies down there and I'd like to have the two of you with us and so we had decided we talked about it and for those of you that do remember or don't remember the you know turn of the century was Y2K and the big issues with the computers other computers gonna crash and everything else and is the world going to stop right yeah and so for us, it didn't matter if the world stopped or not. We were kind already, of hoping it would. Yeah. <laughs> right. It already right. had for us. And so we figured what better place to be than in a third world country where they don't really care about computers anyways. So we ended up going down to um, Peru uh, over the turn of the century. We're down there for about two weeks over Christmas and New Year's. And our families all thought we were insane, mm -hmm. you know, but we had to get away. We had to get away from our families because our families were creating issues for us. Um, the media and it was really causing problems for us. The gentleman who killed our kids, he was out on bail or whatever they right. do. And so that was really difficult, the thought of it. And every time we turned around, they had another... Um, they could postpone him going to jail every time they could so he could have Christmas with his family. Right. So that was really hard. And But we, we laughed because um, we were going to go into shamanism and we're like, oh, we're telling people about this. And some of, you know, one of your really good friends was like, he's a charlatan. He's going to take <laughs> all your money. And we're like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, we meet, we're meeting these people who speak this different language. They talk about spirituality. They talk about spirit they talk about things that normal people don't right. and i need to learn this language so we're like this is where we're going and you had said that alberto said that you had been a shaman in many lifetimes before mm -hmm. and you as we do with reincarnation we have no recollection of any of this so this was completely right. foreign to you or did yes. it strike a chord with you and you were thinking oh my gosh this sounds and feels familiar um I've always been, I've had an interest in, you know, energy and, and I was involved in the martial arts and, and the aspect of controlling your body and controlling the flow of energy. So that always intrigued me. 
Um, the concept of shamanism had never really occurred to me prior to that uh, at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had always believed that there was there was life after death in some form or fashion. I had no clue what it was. Uh, so this was a new concept to me that I had been a shaman and a healer in past lives. Mm-hmm. After the um, funeral, uh, the funeral director, Jim, has he offered his house. He had a second house in Colorado, and he offered it to us, and we thought, what better way to stop the world? Because after this happens, your your life is stopped. I mean, our life changed forever in a split second. And as you get up and you're, you know, just trying to walk through your house or you go outside, you see people going to work and you're like, how is the world still going? Because how is it continuing on? It was actually so hurtful in a way. And um, so we were like, oh, let's go to Colorado because we're going to stop our world. We just have to just get away from everybody. No, seeing no more TV, seeing nothing, you know, the news media, anything. So um, right before we were leaving, um, Rick and I were in the kitchen. Of course, I have my cycle and I'm now after the cycle of my birth control, I'm looking at it and I said to Rick, why am I taking this birth control? Because there is no control in this world. We effing don't have control. So why are we trying to control this? And Rick said, um, just start taking it. We need to heal. And I'm like, I am never healing from this. So I listened and I started taking the birth control pills. And then it was early August, right before we're ready to leave for Colorado. I wake up and I said, oh, I had a dream last night. And Rick said he had a dream as well. And I'm like, you never have a dream. You never remember your dream. So we both said our dream and it was the same words. You have to get the chemical out of your body. It could have been shorter, like get the chemical out of your body, but they use the word chemical. So we both had the same dream. Um, I threw the birth control pills in the garbage that day, um, and we left for Colorado. So um, as we're there, I think we, we were there probably the second, first, second week in August. By the end of August, I'm going down the mountain. Well, that's where his house was, the mountain. And going down the mountain in my big new car and getting a pregnancy test. <sighs> I was pregnant by the end of August. So... Again, divine intervention. Divine intervention. And the kids knew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They knew. Chemical, too. I mean, who talks like that? But you also both interpreted the dream to mean the same thing. Yeah. You you knew, and you inherently Mm -hmm. knew exactly what the message was. Right. Right. And Beth only has one ovary. When I was six years old, I had emergency surgery, and it was a tumor wrapped around my appendix and my ovary. So one little ovary has been working overtime my whole life. <laughs> so. But even so, it's just the timing. Again, timing. The synchronicity right. and everything, just aligning right. for a, a bigger reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, throughout the trip, I mean, we went, you know, we drove out to Colorado. And from Colorado, after that, we drove down to New Mexico because best parents were down there and spent some time down there and then drove back. And there's several times we would stop along the way because we would, connect with um, psychics or mediums to try and get information about the kids. And we got some pretty interesting messages from some of them, and we'll show you one that we got that comes into play later on. Um, Beth has it framed. She actually wrote it out. She was channeling and wrote it out. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we'll show you that later. Yes, please. Uh, So that took place. And 
Um, we had also gotten a message from one of them saying that you'll see Josh. Uh, no, it was my dream. Your dream. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I do dream. Uh, I dream of dead people, so that's one of my superpowers. Um, and so, but in my dreams, so I listen and I also record them. And I had woke up one night and I after a dream, and I said, "We're going to see Joshua. You know, he's going to be a bright light. He's going to be in. The, you know, to nowhere, but just a bright light. We're going to see Josh." The cabin we were house we were staying in in Colorado was at the end of the road and it it butts up against national forest so there's nothing around there nobody around so there's no lights no lights we locked the gate yeah. we were in the end it was the end of the road and so we're laying in bed one night and we both got woken up and we look and there's this bright light that's by the door or a window or door that's in this bedroom we're staying in and we're like, what is that light? You know, because there is no other lights around, so it can't be that. And I'm like, it's not a full moon. It's a new moon right now, so there's no moon at all. And so... It was Joshua. It was Josh showing us in his beautiful angel glory, saying, hey, yeah. Yep. And I love it that he let you know before you time. saw it. That not he to be was afraid, going to possibly. Yeah, yeah, that this is going to be me when you see it. Mm -hmm. And many times when we'd take naps... Um, you know, you're, of course, just so sad. You just take lots of naps, I guess. We would actually feel the kids on top of us in the bed. We'd mm -hmm. be like, oh, my gosh, they're laying right here with us. And so you wouldn't move. You know, your arm would be falling asleep. And it just, it was really sweet and beautiful. I love it that they could pierce the that veil to to let you know that they were there. And right. Just like, I don't know, playing with energy mm -hmm. or light. and yep. Right. Yes. Oh, my God, that's beautiful. So then we'll move back to the trip to Peru. Correct. Yeah. And so um, we had, we liked that, we loved that trip to Peru because it was a group of people that were all spiritual minded and they knew we, you know, as part of the introduction to get everybody to know each other, they heard our story. And so they were helping us to understand this concept of spirit and spirituality and you know, life after death. And um, we did, um, a couple of ceremonies with the native shamans out there. And one of the ceremonies we did was on the Nazca lines in the middle of the night. And it was a spiral. And the, the concept behind it was it was a spiral that came in. And when it got to the center, it turned and worked itself back out again. Uh, and so the, the concept behind this was you do this ceremony so that as you walk into the in, as you're making the path inwards, you're leaving behind all of those energies and baggage and those past lives. And then as you make that turn and begin to step out, you're moving forward into your destiny and who you're to become and you step out of that circle. And so as I was going through it, I could literally, you, you step into this circle and the ceremony it was like everything just kind of faded away. And as you're walking through there, I could just feel this energy being pulled off of me and pulled off of me on the first part. And then as we stepped out and walked out, um, my hair had changed colors. It was blonde when I walked in, and it was white when I came out. It is a visible, I mean, tangible change. Yes, it wasn't just a slight shift. It was like, your hair is white. And, and along with that, you're feeling the weight oh, yeah, definitely stripped away. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. If you go on our website, you can see pictures of Rick with first with blonde hair. Because they, there's a picture with a shaman like doing, taking his mesa and rubbing it on the back of Rick, and he has blonde hair. 
and then later on, it's white. White. Literally. Does that happen along the shamanic, be, to become a shaman? Is that part of the process? Nope. These physical, that's just, just was your gift. Do you think that was from the kids or just from spirit? Well, I tell people it's because I've married to Beth, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I don't know why. It just, it did. And you don't know why. Um, the other thing that happened on that trip was when we had met with Alberto in uh, Utah at that first weekend, he had said uh, then, and he also told Beth when we started the, this uh, trip down to Peru, he said, you have to learn to find beauty again, find beauty in life. And she's like, I am never. <laughs> I and you're thinking not even possible. Oh, it's not even not possible. possible. Was, yeah. And so one of the things that we did over that trip was uh, we were in some boats and we went to this island which is a uh, nature reserve and it's in the ocean and so the island we we went out there in the boats and it was this bright blue day and we're on the ocean and the waves and the island was covered with walruses and seals and sea lions and penguins and, penguins. and it's just it was really nice really neat and we're there and all of a sudden, Beth says, oh, this is so beautiful. And I looked at her. Oh, and I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I was able to find beauty. Dang it. I was not going to. I was stomping my feet. And trying right. To, oh. yeah. So um, we came back from the trip to Peru, and we had to go through uh, the trial. There was a trial, and so we had to. No, go there was no trial. It was just sentencing. Sentencing. I'm sorry. So we had to do that. We had to go through the sentencing, and what we had decided to do, which was a little abnormal, but we felt it fit, is that we created a video to show to the judge in the courtroom about the kids and who they were. Make and, them people, not just names and statistics. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we were able to play that video for the courtroom, and um, it really had an impact with everybody that was in the courtroom because of the, the, the music that we chose and the pictures of the kids. And it ended up, it was a very big deal because um, he got handed the largest sentence ever for um, drunk driving up to that point. Um, he got 20 years. Uh, he could have had 80, 80, 40 per child. Right. But he got 20. 20. Which... We were thrilled with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we had told everybody the his sentencing has no impact on the relation to the worth of our kids. Absolutely. Whether he gets 80 years or one day, it doesn't really matter. Um, and so we, had, we went, had to go through the sentencing and deal with that. And then we began to continue. We had decided as we did that trip to Peru that we were going to continue learning the shamanic path because right now that seemed to make the most sense for us it gave us some it gave us new information it gave us a way to begin to connect with our kids and it seemed like the direction we were being pushed in it was also the only thing that helped right you know right. and it also you being told you were a shaman mm -hmm. in a past life that you need to do this again you are the eldest child. You, you know, you're like, I should do this. I'm going to do this. You, you know, back in Colorado, you were starting to introduce to me that this happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. I was pretty mad that he was saying that. I'm yeah. like, I'm still working with God to get them back. I'm not going to believe that this happened for a reason. I can beg and borrow to get my children back. Because we started to talk about it and think about it. And we look back at 
some of the incidences that happened before the accident and what occurred at the accident scene. Um, for example, as we were leaving, if we were in the van just leaving, Beth had a spot on her shirt and she was like, well, should we, should I go back? Should we not go back? Should I change my shirt? This is all in my mind. And I'm mm, thinking split second, split second. I was like, Oh, messy shirt. I'm embarrassed. Should I go back? But then I knew he wanted to get out. I actually, I didn't even want to go to the mall that day. And I was like, Oh, Rick probably wants to get out of the house, you know, so let's just do this. You know, all this, you know how you have your, that batter between mm -hmm. yourself yeah, and the your head dialogue. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. So I had a shirt, a spot on my shirt, and I was like, I really wanted to go back, but I, we didn't. Right. And so, I mean, we we pulled up to the when we pulled up to the stop and go lights. That police car that had come forward and made that turn was a police car that was responding to a domestic violence call, which was this drunk driver. He. They, so the police were actually going to the home. To the home. Which we did hear later is that um, his wife at the time had told him like a week earlier or three days earlier, they were not going to get back together. Okay. So he had decided he bought a lot of alcohol. He just gave his keys to his father and he decided he was just going to get drunk. This is a 40 year old, by the way. Okay. It's not yeah. a kid. It's yeah. a 40 year old. Yeah. And, he, and then he, so he was very drunk, but he was also very, I think to his father, he sounded suicidal. Okay. So he took, um, so the dad is called the police. I think that's what it was, that he was concerned for his son. Right. And so being and drunk. And that's the, that's the sirens that you heard was the police right. going to that domestic violence or yes. the father right. calling out yes. on, on, for the kid. Okay. Yeah. And so now, of course, he's wasted, mm -hmm. you know, totally drunk. So now he thinks he's in trouble. So he takes his dad's Crown Vic car keys and jumps in there and leaves the scene, leaves his house. Now his dad couldn't um, like knock him down or to get the keys away because he was gonna he's had type like diabetes type two or something, and he was gonna have his like leg amputated within a week or something. So he was in no condition to like stop his son. So the police car was responding to the domestic violence call which he created the the drunk driver created and as the police car turned and started to go down the road the crown vic that the, the car the drunk driver went past him and so the police was able to see the whole accident in his rearview mirror and he was right there to be able and to called be, it in and too. called it in immediately uh, the person that was holding my neck in the car was an off-duty police officer that happened to be walking by the intersection when the accident happened so he jumped in and was able to help the doctors that were there. They were lit, they were on the opposite side of the intersection, and there were a, a husband and wife doctor. They saw the accident and were there immediately to respond. There was a flight for life already in the air. They diverted it to us. There was ambulances already on the road. They diverted it to us. And so when we look back at these incidences and how everything occurred and the fact that I waited before I pulled in the intersection and then that hesitation right yeah. and so all of these things had to line up and I began to think that this must have happened for a reason because this is way too many things from a coincidence standpoint and what we realized um, later on is that Beth had to be conscious she had to be conscious at the scene 
because she had to know that there was nothing that could have been done, nothing that she could have asked for. Everything she asked for was there and showed up. I was given everything I asked for. So she had to know for sure that there was no chance that um, anything could have been different. Everything she asked for, and she was able to see everything that occurred to help her begin to understand that this was supposed to happen. There was no chance with this. And so all of those things were made available to her to help reinforce that idea that it was supposed to happen and there was nothing that could have been done to change it. Well, and I also believe, too, is that I needed to see it so I knew my children weren't in pain Mm. and they weren't calling for me because then I would have thought somebody was hiding something, like the police are not telling me. That would have haunted me for the rest of my life. So, um, and at the accident, I never expressed this, but I did feel like I was encased. So when it happened, I believe angels were encasing me so I didn't get hurt. Mm, to protect you for protect all the reasons right. that Rick just said. Well, and also, okay. I should, we should have died. The accident reconstructionist said there's no way you two should be alive. A car being hit at 80 miles an hour. Nobody should have survived. Right. So... Almost like too many pieces of the puzzle right. aligning to support you. Correct. Your right. Understanding that. Don't, yeah. Yeah. And to then, a split second. Yeah, to split seconds. And then, you know, the messages we began to receive afterward. I mean, there was a, prior to that, you know, some comments that, you know, Josh made a comment at one point. He's like, you know, I'm going to miss this home, he said. And he had said that when we were in West Bend moving to Wanakee, but we think about it afterwards and it's like they kind of had a sense we believe that he had a sense that it was his his time was coming and beth you had mentioned earlier that you kind of always had a inkling that josh wouldn't be with you forever i did i believe from i think he was three three years old four years old i started saying to rick you know i've got i just knew inside i was like we're not going to keep josh forever for his whole entire life, he's gonna die at some point, and so it, I started like being so diligent on teaching them about fire safety. You know, we had an exit plan in the house. I would talk to them about if anybody had a gun, if they're at somebody else's house and there's a firearm, I'm like, you get the heck out of there. I mean, who's? T- I mean, I'm telling my kids, and these are little kids. I didn't know how, but I kept saying. I knew this. And Rick was like, you're just being nervous. You're a nervous mom. And I'm like, no, he's an old soul. He's not staying with us for a long time. I said, look at his ears. He has big ears. He's an old soul. Is and that an indication of being an old soul? I don't know. I was trying to explain it. I was trying to under- explain my inner knowing. Yeah. We all have inner knowing. I didn't know I was going to lose Jessica. Right. So that was surprising. Um, I mean, it's not like it made it any easier. No, not by any means. And that's not what you're saying. Exactly. But I just always knew that he was not going to stay with us for a long time. And and also how he was like, I'm like, Rick, he wants to take our lawnmower apart. I mean, (laughs) what seven-year-old wants to do that? I mean, he's just an old soul. And so I'm like, so yeah, I just tried to protect him so much. And then I didn't see it behind me. So the accident, he came in behind us. Right. Yeah. Um, Beth used to go in when the kids were sleeping. He would rub Josh's cheek in one particular point and one particular spot. And as a result of the impact and everything, that part of his cheek had been torn away. Mm-hmm. Right where she always used to rub. In that exact spot. 
Okay. Yeah. And so um, the other thing that happened that kind of took us by surprise is that when Jim Phillips showed up, the funeral director, the funeral director, he came to, you know, Wanaki, he had to pick up the bodies and then he stopped by us because he, he had to get, you know, there's paperwork and all this stuff that has to take place. And we're looking through the paperwork and it, you know, talked about um, how they died and their date of death. And, Beth, and no, how old they were when they died. How old they were when they died. And Beth says, well, why do they have her birth date? You have her birth date as the day of her death or how old she was when she died. And he said, no, that's how old she was when she died. It matches up. There's one day in your life that matches up. Can you, so you wait, do that again? Through, I yes, go we have to go through it. So she was born September 24th, 1989. Okay. So September is 0924. 1989. So when she died, she was nine years. So the nine for the 89, there's the nine years, nine years, nine months, and 24 days old. Wow. So she, so it matches up. If you take the nine from the years and that September 9th and the 24th. Wow. Happens once in your lifetime. And she died on that day. Right. So Again, all Again. these tiny... <laughs> a sign. Yeah. 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 So I began to put this stuff together. And oh, I was, I was pissed. Yeah, she you. was pissed. <laughs> because you were finding He was accepting me. it. Okay. I was accepting it. And you, you were know. probably just still so struggling that you couldn't yeah. understand how you could be accepting. Yeah, because she was still trying to figure out how to bring him back. Yeah. You know, and you're still in shock. Your yeah. brain oh, cannot so comprehend what just took place. Yeah. And you're still piecing it together. You know, and you're like... You're going to go back, and you're. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to somehow fix this. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the hard part is to understand acceptance. I can imagine. Right. We took a little sidetrack there, but we had yeah. to to talk about this aspect of putting all these pieces together, and that this happened for a reason. This was part one of a two-part series. Please make sure to listen to part two of Rick and Beth Olson, where they continue to discuss and dive deeper into their shamanic healing practice.